0: disclosure I'm Robin Farzad
1: you've got not only a financial crisis and crash but an economic crisis and we have been trying to push our way out of that for the last 10 years I think we're finally beginning to get traction I think the economy is beginning to show some signs of strength but that was a huge shock to the economy and a lot of people have paid the price a lot of innocent people
0: have paid the price 10 long years have passed since Wall Street first flashed the onset of the worst economic crisis of our lifetimes which seems like only a distant nightmare today. After all, stocks are near records. Real estate flippers are back in force. Unemployment is low. You can even spend the bulk of your retirement Bitcoin on avocado toast, if you so please. However, one crisis hangover that refuses to go away is the economy's over-reliance on super low interest rates. How and when will we break out of that? We ask a veteran Federal Reserve Bank president, so stay unchanged. This broadcast is made possible by the support of Health Warrior, makers of chia bars, which I love. I love the mango chia bars. I can't get enough of them. Uh, Health Warrior is a superfood company that believes better health will build a stronger society. Better health starts with the right ingredients, which is why the first one in all of our products is a superfood, the most nourishing food on the planet. Our products combine these powerful ingredients in a way that tastes awesome and actually fits into a real-life routine. Uh, You must try the chia bars. I mean, peanut butter, cacao, protein bars are all the rage. I love the chia bar mangoes. You're seeing pumpkin seed chia bars all over the place. You could find them at Elwood Thompson's, Whole Foods, Target. I found them in grocery stores. End of Summer Sale lets you save 30% on your order with code SUMMER30. Go to healthwarrior.com. And by Elwood Thompson's, I've told you time and again... This is the best store in Virginia and my favorite hangout. I love breakfast there, the hot bar, the vegan biscuits, the make-your-own-sandwich station, the various, various, various forms of iced coffee, cold brew. I mean, I'm just breathless when I talk about them. I love Elwood Thompson's. It's at the top of Carytown at the corner of Elwood and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me here in studio, in the flesh, in the person, it is my honor to have... Al Broadus, the sixth president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. He was there between 1993 until his retirement in 2004. Uh, the Fed, the Richmond Fed, covers a huge swath of country. We're talking Washington, D.C., Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and most of West Virginia, with exception of the Northern Panhandle. Good, sir. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. I enjoy. Appreciate the invitation. What a blast to have you here. Now, you told me your career at the Fed started way back in the year 1970. Tell yeah. me how that happened, how you got there, what the world was like.
1: Well, you know, I was—without uh, uh, giving giving you more detail than you want to hear, I am an economist. I didn't start off that way. But when I was in undergraduate school in college, I thought I wanted to join the Foreign Service. So took political science uh, and international relations, but got more and more interested in economics and eventually went back to graduate school in economics. And, uh, you know, I had grown up in Richmond— didn't really did, uh, it, it, I think I would, I would come back to Richmond, but uh, and it was almost accidental. I was in graduate school at Indiana University, and my major professor there knew the man who ran the uh, research department at the Richmond Fed. He said you ought to talk to him and, and uh, see what, what they might uh, offer. So uh, I had a couple of other offers, and uh, this just looked like uh, the one here uh, looked like the best job. I took it and I've never, never regretted it. What but did they make a back career.
0: here back then? It was, it was cigarettes and lead for gasoline. I mean, railroad ties. What else? <laughs> uh, in Richmond, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, tobacco was, you know, clearly a, a, a major industry
1: here in those days. Richmond, though, had some other advantages. Richmond was a rail center. Uh, it was the crossroads of the major north-south, east coast trunk line. And the east-west train you had the C&O going east and west. You had the seaboard and the Atlantic coastline going uh, north uh, and, and south. And, uh, of course, the RFNP com- uh, connected Richmond with the northeast corridor uh, uh, in, in Washington. So uh, railroads and transport was a big deal. In those days, banks were much smaller. You didn't have uh, uh, nation- nationwide banks. You had some big banks in New York. But uh, Richmond was a banking center that has— Well, you used to get a uh, a toaster
0: with your certificate of deposit, I remember. Uh, I think that's right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about this because we're going to fill in a lot in the middle. So between 1970 and, and 2004, let's fast forward you all the way to 2008. Um, I know this is cutting into a lot of period. I mean, you're at the Federal Reserve at a period of you know, the, the, the gold standard fluctuations. You're talking about railroad bankruptcies, continental Illinois, the savings and loan crisis, the crash of 87, the big bond calamity of 1994, LTCM. I mean, it spans everything, irrational exuberance. And you get out in 2008. 2000- And you had to watch on the sidelines what happened in 2008 with uh, Wall Street coming undone and the entire economy with these weak players, AIG and Lehman Brothers and these other banks about to fail uh, with the Federal Reserve of New York and the Treasury secretary effectively putting guns to the head and saying, you need to merge or else Uh, the most extraordinary economic mishap of our lifetimes. What was going through your mind?
1: Well, you know, let me give you just a little bit uh, of perspective that does involve that period between – uh, 1970, and when I left in 2004, because m- much of my career was uh, involved with fighting inflation. The 1970s was a, was a, a decade in which you started off with uh, you know a relatively low rate of inflation. And Wait, that sir, be-
0: you said inflation. What is inflation? Inflation. I is I've never heard in my life. Go ahead. Go increase go ahead. <laughs> in the general
1: price level, but you know it's a, it's a hugely important phenomenon because basically hmm. what you're doing is devaluing the purchasing power. Of the money in people's pockets, so it has mm-hmm. a huge impact. And uh, you know, if you look historically in Germany in the in the 1920s, wheelbarrows, uh, big huge in- wheelbarrows, and that was undoubtedly a part of the uh, of the uh, circumstances that led uh, to the development of the Nazis and 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 their growth in the in the 1930s. So we we were nowhere near that in 1970, but we did have a problem. So most of my career uh, through 2004 was dealt with that issue but actually in when we got to 2000 and that the beginning of the the decade of the 2000s things changed uh we got the inflation under control we got the inflationary psychology under control and interest rates began to come down so we were dealing not so much with a threat of inflation but with with the risk of deflation and when i left that's kind of where i left a lot of people would—so then fast forward a few years to the financial crisis. Uh, many people believe that the uh, uh, the period of low interest rates is not the only factor, but one of the factors that, that led to the to the uh, crisis in 08 and 09. And, yeah, I, I watched it from the sidelines. Uh, and uh, there were many times when I thought, gee, uh, I'd like to be in there fighting, but I'd, on, on the other hand, uh, uh, it's, it, in a way, it's— it's nice not to be in the middle of it, but it was a t- it was a terrible event, as you know. Did any and simulation we
0: any simulation ever imagine? I mean, an event like this, a Monte Carlo simulation. I mean, it's I don't such think a it was foreseen, tale.
1: No, I, I don't. I don't think we've, we. Uh, it was. It was. It was. So
0: there were there were some
1: people, I guess, who saw the potential uh, for a, a market break. Uh, Lewis's book, uh, uh, you know. Uh, Or the big big short short. uh, uh, gets into that from a market perspective, but uh, it is not something that was forecasted uh, with any clarity by mainstream mainstream economists. Uh, It uh, you know there's been a lot written about what the causes were. Uh, Everybody has uh, an opinion. I have one. If you if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, well, uh, I, uh, I
0: wonder – I wanted to take you to that because if you go back to the earlier part of the decade where you were at the Fed, uh, the bugaboo became deflation, this worry about this this spiraling lower of prices and lower wages. And if we see something akin to what happened in Japan, it sounds great on the sidelines. Oh, deflation is great until you realize you, know, you could take a huge cut in your job. You can um, – you're going to see a deflation in assets and suddenly you own mortgages on things that are not worth paying the bank on anymore. It's just this awful obverse of inflation, which you knew all too well in the 70s and early 80s with um, with Paul Volcker. So the Greenspan Fed – uh, was accused of waiting way too long to take rates back up after the shock of the Y2K crash and September 11th. And, and in, in 2020 hindsight, it's alleged that that environment, the 03, 04, 05, really swelled this subprime bubble, which then subsumed the entire economy four years later. And then the Fed had to take rates down to emergency levels in 2008. And 10 years later, almost, we're still dealing with very stimulative interest rates. I mean, in the one and a half percent range. Right.
1: Well, uh, to, to go, you, you covered a lot of ground there. So let me just go back and sort of take it in pieces. You're right, uh, Greenspan and those of us who were at the Fed in '02 and '03 and '04 have been criticized for holding interest rates at, at, a, at a low level there. And in, in retrospect, it may be that we that we held those rates too low too long. But I do think it's fair to recall, you know. Deflation is not a phenomenon that many of us had had any experience with at that point. We've read about it in the history books, Bernanke in particular, you know, as a student of, of that era. But the 1930s, within the last, you know, the, the U.S. economic history over the last 130, 40 years, uh, the, the worst economic event was not an inflation but a deflation in the 1930s. So we were not— uh, we were—I don't think—as I look back to two thousand and two and two thousand and three and the early part of oh four, which were my the uh, last months at the Fed. Uh, I don't think—I thought we were going back to the 30s, but we. one thing we knew was this. The way to fight a deflation is don't get there in the first place. So we were holding rates down and trying to keep uh, the stimulus uh, uh, at a relatively high level to avoid that. Uh, we did, you know—this was after I left, but in, in uh, the latter part of '04, beginning in June of '04 and '05, they did begin to march— uh, interest rates uh, back up pretty steadily for a, a year and a half, uh, uh, and and uh, you know one can argue that uh, maybe that should have been done more quickly, and that might have helped to undercut the conditions that led to what we went through in 08 and 09. But I will tell you that it it is hard for me, and this is my view, and, and people will argue with me on this. I don't. I think it's hard to make the case that the Feds. Policies in 02 and 03 were a major cause of the breakout of the of the breakdown in in 08. Uh, what would I I'd say was a major cause? My own view uh, is that government housing policy over the long haul was really
0: the, housing at any cost, mortgage uh, uh, for everyone. There was
1: yeah all all of that. Please don't misunderstand housing, the American dream. Uh, we want to provide good housing for our people. Uh, but uh, the way it was gone about uh, was to encourage and uh, in some cases i think uh, we had we had goals for housing uh, especially for low-income people again an extraordinarily worthy thing to want to do and a great goal but what was was done was uh, government policy uh, encouraged banks essentially to make loans that were not uh, necessarily credit-worthy uh, loans. And so what you had was banks making a lot of these mortgages, subprime mortgages. They were all out there. And then once things got rolling and low interest rates may have paid or played a little bit of a role here, once things got rolling, you you got the large banks uh, involved in securitizing uh, these mortgages into big securities that were not transparent and we all know what let happened from there. That's the process. Isn't that a big
0: diffusion it. of responsibility? I'm always thinking about Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. And it's a white whites of the eye transaction if you want a home loan. You're, you're going to pay me back, right? You're going to make sure you're paying yeah. me back, right? But it became so far removed from that by the aughts, the 2000s, the fact that you could package these things. By the way, a low global interest rate environment stokes that people are looking for uh, yield. They're looking for something that is potentially riskless, uh, quasi-risk free, right? That has a government backstop with Fannie and Freddie, and Wall Street is saying, "Well, you wanted it, we're, we're giving it to you." And it's a it's a virtuous cycle because we're enabling home ownership, the American dream. Um, if you are very cynical to say that that's the perfect crime, because ultimately the taxpayers on the hook, ultimately the Federal Reserve has to stage a bailout, ultimately as I want to steer you into this conversation, savers have been on the hook for a decade to quote-unquote recapitalize the banking system. So me and my parents, we did not listen to the siren calls of subprime and Alt-A mortgages and now for 10 years we've been getting nothing on our hard-earned cash and we've been forced into riskier assets to get any modicum of yield. Um, so where's where does the buck stop? Where well, was that's the, the justice in that? Uh,
1: you know, I think we had a policy that was carried uh, uh, carried too far. You mentioned uh, Jimmy Stewart and a Wonderful Life. What's the lesson there? You know, he, he he said, "Are you credit? You know, credit standards were uh, uh, allowed to deteriorate uh, uh, throughout the industry, throughout financial markets, and that was just a very unfortunate uh, development. And you got not only a financial uh, crisis and crash, but an economic crisis. Uh, and we have been trying to push our way out of that for the last 10 years. I think we're finally beginning to get traction. I think the economy, you know, is beginning to show some signs of strength. But that was a huge shock to the economy. And yeah, you're right. A lot of people have paid the price. A lot of innocent people that pay the price. Yeah, that's 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 the way it is.
0: Now, what I want to add, just for context, if we go back to July 2007. I'm at the Federal Reserve uh, website. The effective Fed funds rate was five and a quarter percent. The big, the main interest rate that's targeted by the Federal Reserve. Now that markets are at an all-time high, unemployment we're told is back, you know, around five percent at the natural rate. Inflation is tame. Uh, real estate is resurgent again. The Fed funds rate is back up to 1.15 percent. I mean, we had zero interest rate policy starting in December 2008. It has been vexingly hard, Al, to wrest the bone back from the dog's <laughs> mouth, right? Yeah. If you're looking at Janet Yellen or Ben Bernanke before her, you come out and, and there were there were tertiary levels of interest rates. We had quantitative easing, which is what $3 trillion plus of asset buying on top of taking rates to zero, levers that we have not pulled in, in, in recent history. Um, so my point is reabsorbing this all back and taking rates back to whatever normal normalcy is is proven to be just a, a, a torturous affair it's It's been very difficult uh,
1: uh, the the reason for that, I think uh, is uh, you know at a mechanical level is pretty pretty clear. The Fed has two objectives. we are mandated by Congress to maintain and sustain. High employment, uh, uh, and that can be, you can argue about exactly what that is, but I think most Americans have a pretty good idea what that is, and we're certainly there now, but also stable prices, price stability. That means no inflation, which was the problem in the 70s and the 80s, but also, as we've already alluded to, uh, no deflation either. The problem that the Fed has faced throughout this decade, throughout this whole period since the shock of 08 and 09 has been a failure of, in the background, a concern that we really haven't completely uh, uh, knocked out the risk of some sort of deflation. Therefore, we need to keep uh, monetary policy stimulative and keep rates low. Uh, We are still dealing with that. And, you know, the immediate situation Right now, in uh, in uh, late August of uh, of 2017, wh- where's the Fed? The Fed has set uh, uh, an expectation in financial markets and among ordinary Americans that that they're going to we're going to tighten policy, let rates rise back up. Closer to what you refer to uh, as a normal uh, level, but the problem is again the data—the inflation data—are not giving the Fed a free pass on that. Uh, we have a target: two percent inflation. You need—some people might say—why would you have any, infl-, you know, target any inflation? You need a, some cushion uh, so that if the economy begins to to weaken sharply, the Fed has some leeway to drop rates and stimulate policy and yeah, avoid so a recession. 1. so one point fifteen percent doesn't
0: are. leave you any cushion. Uh, right. I mean, sorry. One point fifteen percent. It seems like at this point the Fed funds target rate does. It's like pushing on a string if you cut into well, you, a crisis. You don't. That's why. And so that, that's that's the problem. We want to get inflation up higher
1: so that we can get rates higher and be in a more normal situation. But the inflation data is is making it difficult to do that. Mm. Uh, you can you can argue about there's a lot of discussion and speculation about why in, why inflation is not going up, despite the fact that we've had lots of Fed stimulus, uh, quantitative easing for a number of years, uh, you know, and and relatively uh, accommodative monetary policy uh, over the period since that ended, uh, it's 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 a bit of a conundrum. Uh, there, there, there are some theories out there. Larry Summers talks about secular stagnation. There's some other ideas as well. But the Fed ultimately has to be driven by the data, uh, and data is telling us you need to be cautious in raising rates so that you don't
0: weaken the economy and cut the recovery short. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Al Broadus. He was the sixth president of the Richmond Fed um, between 1993 until his retirement in 2004. It's really a treat to have you here. Um, I want to get at uh, inflation targeting again. What about a different inflation in asset inflation? This has been a controversy going back to your tenure where uh, there are purists out there that it should say that it should be a binary target for the Fed, full full employment and uh, low inflation. What about asset inflation? What about when uh, an Alan Greenspan is faced with irrational exuberance, let's say 1996? Is he supposed to just sit on the sidelines and say, oh, there's nothing I can do but lament it cryptically on the sidelines until it takes down the entire economy? I mean, for example, we thought that if real estate collapsed in 2005, 2006, 2007, it would be its own category. But it was so systemic that it took down various other sectors and uh, a major insurer and um, we don't know if French banks are interconnected with American banks. Is there something to be said about for targeting asset inflation? You know, Is there
1: of, any way to do it? The, it's it's difficult to do uh, in practice. There are those who uh, argue that uh, we should, in addition to target, you know, let's 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 keep keep the terminology straight here. Inflation, as I'm using the term, and as most monetary economists and Fed people use the term, means the general price level not just assets but current production current currently produced goods and services it's the obverse of the value of money money generally the purchasing power of money that's what the fed with monetary policy is able to over time control that i, I think most most people would uh, would agree with that it's much more difficult for the fed to to uh, to target asset prices and and do things with monetary policy that are, that are going to affect asset prices only also, you know, there's, there's the, the whole question of identifying when you have a bubble and when you don't have a bubble. Let's put yourself in the, in the uh, shoes of a Fed chairman. You're sitting there and you could, you could use, you know, 07 and 08, uh, I guess Bernanke was chairman, as a good example of that. Uh, you have this situation where you see asset prices going up. Is there a bubble going on or not, or is it really just a, a successful economy revaluing assets upward because uh, of, of the good things that are happening in the economy? What if the Fed uh, undercuts that, but it makes a mistake and pulls the rug out of a period of, of, of prosperity? It's just The point is it's very difficult for the Fed to, to, to really spot and identify a, what is a bubble at a point in time where it can actually
0: deal with that, you know, so sure people s- are reluctant to do that. Right. I'm one of them. I'm sure you saw the language in 2006, 2007, the Fed minutes and the the, the deliberations. You know, there were there were flicks at. Uh, you know, there is some softness, there is some weakness in the housing market, but it's kind of you know full speed ahead, really at five. Five and five and a quarter percent. We don't see any reason for alarm until there was alarm and certainly something unexpected and exogenous and shocking can happen. That's happened in history. It will happen again. But that's disconcerting. I I know that everybody's expecting pure 2020 uh, foresight and impressions from Federal Reserve presidents. They're not superhuman, but it blindsided everyone. Um, and then we're looking at having to take down rates from above 500 basis points to nothing in a matter of a year. That's that's really abnormal. I can't imagine that the Federal Reserve's charter or a loose interpretation of any sorts could have could have had the creativity of imagination for that.
1: Well, uh, you know, yeah, it, it was it it was a blow. Uh, once once it, you know, we got into the the middle of 2008 became a, the the weakness. Uh, of, of the balance sheets of major financial institutions became uh, more apparent. But that's really the, the point that I was trying to make earlier. Let's say, you know, some might argue that the Fed, the Fed should have had the prescience to be able to determine that this was going to happen back in 2007. And there were some issues in 2007. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that if you were back in 2007 in real time, it would have it 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 been very difficult at that point, even though we knew there's some, there were some problems arising maybe in the subprime arena, to be able to definitively say, hey, look, this is a, an emerging bubble. We're sure of that. Let's move interest rates up aggressively and rapidly. There was good reason to think that that could have been a big mistake back then. That's the problem with targeting asset prices, okay? So once you get around to the middle of 2008 and you begin to see in your examinations of financial institutions uh, that this is a, uh, that, that financial markets, asset values are at, at excessively high levels and they're gonna come down. Yeah, then you, it's too late to prevent it. Then you have to, and this is Greenspan's point, then you have to act aggressively, and of course Bernanke did this uh, to, to prevent it from becoming uh, something even worse than it was. Uh, you know, depression in the, in the general economy. My own uh, view of this, Robin, I wasn't there, I was on the sidelines looking at this. I think they did a pretty good job. Uh, it wasn't always pretty, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't smooth. But once it became uh, clear that what was going on was uh, a liquidity crisis and uh, there, were, there were hints of panic around it. You know, at the time of the Bear Stearns failure and certainly in September of 08 when uh, Lehman Brothers went down and AIG got into trouble and all of that. What a central bank exists for at that point is to put liquidity in uh, huge amounts out into the economy to prevent a general further downturn. Hmm. Uh, and we didn't prevent a deep recession, but we did prevent a depression. And some might say gee that uh, that's the least you could have done but that's not that wasn't a that wasn't a gimme uh, and it, it it took a lot of effort it took a lot of innovation the fed created a whole bunch of channels through which liquidity could be provided to markets and the economy not only here but internationally uh, and I think ultimately uh, uh you can never know the counterfactual but sure. it could, and it's just, it's the phrase that a lot of people when I say this, uh, you know I've had this conversation many times before. People will say, "Gee, uh, not a big deal," but it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, you know, we we had a deep recession. But by the time we got out of 2008 and into 2009, hit a bottom, stock market bottom, and you know we laid a foundation to come back. Didn't have to fight it for. Four, five, six years.
0: Al Broadus, talk to me about the bond bull, which isn't talked about as much because it's not such a you know high beta event. It's gone on now for thirty-five years since you know Paul Volcker was in there with his sleeves rolled up and chomping on the big cigar, breaking the back of inflation. A 35-year bond market bull run. I mean, do you faintly remember where Fed funds was in 1981 or 1982? Yeah, I do. Sure, the Fed Fed funds
1: was uh, uh, up 19, 18 to 19, maybe over 20 percent. 18, can't 19,
0: 20 percent. We're at 1.15 yeah. percent at the top of this cycle. We're at five and a quarter percent. And anybody who's invested in, I mean, long-term bonds, I mean, Mike Milken, junk bonds, high-quality corporates, muni's, you've done really great. Uh, my question is: Is there any institutional memory? The fact that you can lose money in bonds. I know there was a blip in 94 when you were there and Wall Street did feel some pain.
1: Well, you know, the the, the memory I think maybe has come back a little bit uh, in recent years. But the bull market uh, in bonds was just the other side of the Fed's success. Finally, it took us long enough uh, to bring the inflation rate down. Uh, you you asked what, what the funds rate was in 1980. Do you remember what interest rates were? in 1979 and 1980, and not just the funds rate, but long-term. The the inflation rate was uh, 10, 11, by some, I guess the CPI, I think, uh, peaked at maybe 12% in in 1980. Uh, So high inflation, uh, long-term rates is not just the funds rate, but uh, long-term government bond rates were uh, well into the teens, uh, and uh, so uh, that was largely the result of fears of inflation and inflation expectations. Volcker started the process dramatically, you really had to push the economy through a recession mm-hmm. to break that psychology and make the – so the initial steps to get it down. That's what started. Do we have so to break – So you, yeah. you had a bond – a bull market for yeah, 15, 20 years. Uh, now you're, you're, you've had these these concerns about deflation. It's a different different sort of
0: picture. But I mean that, that core inflation, the root of it is is a wage-price spiral – issue where you can go and demand a raise and get a raise and costs are passed down constantly. It's something that's been largely unfamiliar generationally. I'm not talking about just bond trading desks, but people who've come of age in the roaring bull market of the 1990s. We just haven't known true core inflation for a no, long time.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We, we got uh, – that was the last, uh, the last generation's – that was my generation's war. In conducting monetary policy, and and, and 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 what the Fed had to do, uh, we did that. And then once we had we had that uh, we had that licked, and I think you could probably date that around the end of the last century, in the late 1990s, is where we really felt that we had credibility. That's an important part of this. It's not just the dollars and cents; it's the psychology. Uh, by the time you got into that period, I think we had we had uh, basically uh removed inflation expectations, deep inflation expectations is a major problem in the economy. So that, uh, we, we now have had to deal with the opposite concerns about deflation, uh, uh, asset price bubbles that may be caused by things like housing policy or whatever. Uh, so it's been a different a different set of, uh, of issues.
0: I know this is a wonky question, but what do you think when you see very briefly flashing on the screen on CNBC or Bloomberg TV the 30-year – they used to call it the 30-year bellwether bond. Trading at less than 4%. I mean, to hold that on to maturity now, you're talking 2047. So many different things can happen in the world. If you think back to the past 30 years, um, what kind of person would go out there and park money and and risk money over 30 years? I've seen, I believe in my coverage, that some companies like Caterpillar or the University of Pennsylvania were issuing 50-year Debt – I mean it was such a low-interest rate environment that it behooved everybody to go out and push out maturities, um, customers. Well, people were, were looking for, for yield. yield will
1: do that. And it,
0: uh, you know, Does yeah, that worry it, you? Uh, not not
1: particularly. I think kind of the way I look at this is can you imagine anybody uh, signing on to a, a bond like that in 1980 or 1981? You know, you there would have been the, the risk that inflation would continue to – uh, to rise uh, and 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 cause a, a, a huge uh loss uh now and yeah nobody knows exactly what's going to happen over the next uh, fifty years but if I'm an investor right now uh at, at least I know that inflation the process of the systematic destruction of the purchasing power of of money and f- other financial uh, assets is It's not front and center now. It may come back, but, you know, we have dealt with that pretty effectively, and so there's a damn good chance that it won't come back. So if I'm, you know, uh, uh, let's say I'm running a pension fund or whatever, and I need long-term income, uh, and I can't get it, I can't meet my obligations with very low uh, uh, short-term assets now, I may be willing to extend out uh, for some time in the future in order to – it may be a rational decision. Sure, it's a decision that you make under uncertainty. There's always risk, uh, but it may be a rational decision. And, you know, if you've got a a long-term obligation and you need long-term assets and income to cover it, then uh, you may not have any choice but to do something like that.
0: Are the long-term investors underlying these assets prepared to see markdowns to principal?
1: Uh, I think they, uh, if, they're, if they're intelligent investors and most uh, people who have a, a lot of money to invest are, they're going to certainly factor that into their decision about whether to do it or not and also in their demands for what
0: the return must be before they make this decision. Hmm. Talk to me about the rest of the world, namely China, China's ascension to the WTO in 2001. Uh, you were still at the Fed. They own a ton of our paper. Um, They have enormous sway over the U.S. economy. It's not like we have the pure monetary self-determination that we did in prior decades, where the United States was an island. I mean, maybe Japan was a foil to us. Now we have not, in real time, seen a true deep Chinese recession in the post-WTO period. And what happens in that event?
1: Well, it it would be a a huge problem. And you know, they've got China is is uh, a huge. Uh, complex economy, uh, and there are elements of the Chinese economy that are state-of-the-art uh, in, in today's world, and there are other elements which are still back 200 years ago, so it's, it's very hard to generalize uh, about the Chinese economy. But I would make these points. Uh, they're a talented, productive uh, people, and they have, you know, moved from a repressive communist regime with all that implied for the economy to a more open, somewhat more open uh, uh, economic uh, environment now, and you can—and that has—they've been very productive. Uh, it's, it's been a rough road, and there's still many—you uh, know, government policy leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, the government is heavily involved still in much economic decision-making that, that leads to problems. Uh, the current problem, of course, is an, a huge amount of debt. Uh, that uh, threatens uh, both their economy and their financial markets. Uh, I, I certainly uh, hope that that they can deal with that because the, you know, China does present risk and and and, and they present trade issues uh, and and other issues uh, to the U.S. But they also, have, from a longer term perspective, hold out lots of opportunities. Uh, my own view uh, – this is, gets, in, I guess, into the current political controversy, but which I don't particularly want to do. But, I mean, I, I think trading uh, trading relations with China going forward, uh, if, I hope that they can develop uh, and be robust because I think that will uh, inure to the benefit not only of their economy but of ours uh, as well and the whole global economy. So I hope that we can maintain – you know, one of the great sources of economic progress, not only in the U.S. but around the world, in the aftermath of World War II, was the the, the advent of the liberal trading regime. Uh, we need to maintain that, uh, and and I hope we will. You mentioned the when you your question before you mentioned China, you, you talked about the world economy. China is a big part of it, but not all of it. World economy is looking better. Uh, the European economy, which has been in a very Uh, uh, the weak state for a long time uh, is now clearly uh, uh, more than just green shoots. It's got some momentum. The German economy has been uh, strong for a while, but you're now seeing strength in places where you haven't seen it for a long time, even the Greek economy. Is showing some uh, signs of growth. Most recently, Spanish economy. So, the eurozone is 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 doing uh, better. The European Central Bank uh, under uh, Draghi is talking about perhaps removing some of their accommodation, which would tend to allow rates to begin to normalize in Europe. That you know, to the extent that it plays in with our own policies and assuming our own economy can keep its momentum you would begin to see rates in this highly developed part of the world in North America and in Mm. Europe begin to begin to rise Ah, and uh, you know if we can uh, hopefully keep uh, keep our trading uh, strong trading relationships uh, uh, moving forward uh, in the rest of the world I think the overall economic outlook could be quite bright for the longer term future. Go ahead and buy that uh, zero coupon bond and do it. Do so with confidence.
0: <laughs> now, we've not had a garden variety bear market correction in a long time. I mean, you know, 2011, I believe, was the last time that the market truly fell something approaching, I think 19% or so. There were the crises in Europe, um, huge volatility. You've seen volatility has gone down to um, really complacent lows up until recently with the North Korea flare up. Um, what does that mean in the grand scheme? I mean it seems like investors have to be reminded occasionally that it's not a risk-free asset, that things do fall apart.
1: Well, things, things can. But uh, it, you know, it's been 10 years, yes, 10 years since the zero eight zero nine financial crisis and deep recession. But that was a big shock to the U.S. economy and the European economy and the world economy generally. But let's just focus on uh, – uh, the U.S. for now, yeah, we've had a long recovery. But one of the reasons for that is some good things came out of that uh, traumatic experience. Uh, business firms and households worked hard. They had to to repair their balance sheets, to reduce excessive uh, debt levels, to, uh, to attenuate imbalances uh, in their financial uh, uh, situations. And, and so you, you had the, the foundations— were laid in the early stages of the recovery from the uh, crisis for a period of stable and solid growth. A lot of people complain about the fact that the growth rate has been relatively low by historical standards, 2%, maybe a little bit uh, lower. But that's still, you know, when you accumulate and, and, and compound that, that's, that's a lot of progress. And I would argue that the uh, relatively moderate pace of economic growth uh, the caution that we've seen in uh, credit extensions by banks and uh, elsewhere in financial markets has been one of the reasons why it's lasted so long. And I hope it continues that way uh, for a while longer. Uh, you know, it, what, what usually – recessions uh, re- – recoveries don't die of old age. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that point made lately, and that's true. Uh, they die of, of the kind of thing you've been talking about: uh, uh, imbalances growing up in financial markets. Oh, uh, uh, well, Mister Minsky, Mister Minsky, uh, R- you R- know people forgetting about what credit standards need right. to be in housing uh, and in and in business credit extensions generally. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm okay with a uh, uh, continued moderate growth. Uh, we've got labor markets, you know, employment. We're pretty much at full employment now. People can argue about, you know, there's some some people that would like work that don't have it, but the vast majority of people who want a job have got one. So uh, that's that's a good thing, and we need to sustain it. Inflation is low. I'd like to see it a little higher, but, hey, let's let's, look—let's don't forget— that uh, it, it, once inflation gets, it, it, you know, if we we've got to watch and make damn sure that that we don't get over the line and have inflation begin to grow again. Because once you have that happen, it's very difficult to turn it down. That's a
0: question. How do you stoke that? It's like snake charming. You know, you want the snake to come out and dance a bit, but you don't want it to run riot and run amuck into it's, the crowd. It's it's it it it's is, so hugely difficult.
1: It's an it's it's almost an art form. Uh, you know, you have to balance uh, uh, a lot. Uh, I think we, we know uh, from what we've learned studying uh, monetary economics, both as a theoretical matter, studying, studying history, uh, we know that the longer-term growth of, of money and credit has a great deal to do with the behavior of the price level. Price-level behavior and expectations about price-level behavior have a huge impact on financial markets. Uh, so if you're conducting monetary policy, we, you need to set goals, and you need to make those clear and transparent. And I think we've come a long way in doing that. I think back to when I—going back to the early part of this interview, I started in the Fed in 1970. The was was very secretive, and it was not transparent at all then. People found out— what the Fed, what what our policy decisions were, not by some announcement from the Fed, but by looking at I markets got, I and got to tell inferring you, that. It was
0: amazing. I got to tell you, I kind of missed that, looking at Alan Greenspan's briefcase, yeah. reading the nomic, the cryptic speak and everything. There was a there was a certain burlesque to it. it. it was, you know, it, now they put it, everything it was, out was, there on it the it table. It was nice and quaint, and, and uh, you know, it was kind
1: of fun. <laughs> uh, and I, I always enjoyed those, those uh, television pictures of him walking across the street there. But uh, – I think what we learned, and what we know from studying uh, monetary history is that central banks need to have clear objectives, and those objectives need to be need to be feasible for the Fed and other central banks to achieve uh, the, and in particular, price level stability is is, is the key uh, and the fed so the Fed needs to have that as an objective. It needs to be transparent about how it's going to go about achieving it. Uh, and it has to—in in that way, the Fed builds credibility. And when the Fed builds credibility with the public, especially financial market participants, but but the general public as well, then the public's behavior will feed back into what the Fed is doing to produce— uh, stable conditions that can be sustained. Mm. I'm not saying that the fed, you know, we're going to have la la land forever and there's never going to be any any more fallouts but but we can have sustained long periods of economic stability. You know, we had that. We had a period of that in the 1980s and the 1990s. And a lot of that had to do with the decline in the inflation rate and the and the and the acquisition of credibility on the part of the fed. Now, that's not so much a matter of acquisition as holding on to it. Mm. And if we can do that, I think, I think I think the outlook is bright yeah we may have some some ups and downs but but there's a good chance that we can avoid the kind of really major crises we faced in 2008 2009
0: you know I know this is neither here nor there Al Bratis, but I really wish and I, I you know maybe we can hijack this interview to get you to intervene uh, even in retirement that the San Francisco Fed would collaborate with the Mexican Central Bank to break the back of avocado inflation. I can't get a decent avocado anymore for less than three dollars. Uh, gee, you know, I never worked in the San Francisco Fed, oh, so Daddy I don't know do a whole lot about. The, I don't know
1: a lot about the, the avocado market. We have
0: a few but, minutes left. Close us out. What are you watching? What is what is being underreported? What keeps you up at night? What makes you happy? I'm. I'm actually, uh, uh, as I look back over the years that I've been following the economy,
1: I, I am more comfortable now than I've been in a long time. World faces a lot of th- they're geopolitical threats. We all know that there's there there. Uh, special events uh, uh, coming off the wall could could cause could cause trouble but just in in terms of let's just keep it to the us economy for the, for, the, for the moment uh we have now almost 10 years of of economic recovery we have uh we have uh very tight labor markets uh inflation is not quite at the level the federal reserve would like to have it at but basically uh we don't i certainly don't sense any immediate threat of inflation and i don't see deflation as the risk that it was maybe a few years back so there's a lot of stability built in into our broader macroeconomic uh, uh, picture so i think you know that the job is to sustain that uh keep it going uh so how do we do that i think we do it but the fed needs to to continue to hammer home what our goals are it needs to continue to be transparent uh i worry you know i i, I worry that uh that uh, the political uh Uh, the forces that be you know the Fed is always the the Fed needs to be left alone and and it needs to remain independent within the government and able to produce and and follow reasonable policies and there's always a little bit of a threat here and uh, sometimes you ask me what keeps me awake sometimes I worry that uh, maybe that uh, independence might get breached a little bit but 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 that's not a clear and present danger now, and I'm I'm hoping that we can uh, get get a, a, a few more years uh, where where we can maintain stable And fi- finally, conditions. any
0: thoughts on succession, with the chairman of the Fed? Uh, you know, uh, I know Janet
1: Yellen uh, well. Uh, I think she's been a very effective chairman, and. Uh, uh, I personally would would like to see her reappointed uh, and uh, able to. Con- I don't. I, I'm not. I not i do not know that she would accept it. Whether she wants to, she's uh, and, you know a little older now. I guess she, I think she's in her early 70s. She might not. Uh, I want to to stay in the job, but I think she's she's a very competent economist. Uh, I do not think that's. She's non political. I think she's really very objective in the way she goes about uh, doing her job. So. Uh, I would I think and I think that would be a, a a decision that could to help continue that would would help keep these stable conditions I keep talking about uh, in place so but, but that's a decision uh, that the president has to
0: make, and we'll see how that unfolds. And um, I'm grateful for the overtime. decision you made to come on this fine broadcast. Al Broaddus, the sixth president of the Richmond Federal Reserve, retired since 2004, but I, I roused you from retirement to come on this great show. It's and been I've, a I've, pleasure. I've seen you on Bloomberg TV, on CNBC. Keep at it. And uh, if you can make a call or two on my behalf uh, for avocado inflation. Oh, well, certainly do that, i do huh? I make a great grok, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do know that I know the president of the, of the San Francisco Fed a little bit, so maybe next time I'm in his company, I'll tell him to put a word, put, in, a, put for a word in for me. It's becoming
0: okay. rationally exuberant. Full disclosure: our engineer is John Valentine. You can catch and love this fine broadcast on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Support us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash FullDRadio. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.